I want to begin talking about how we deal with a crisis. Neurosurgery is a lot about handling a crisis. Well, everyone gets to handle a crisis, uh, a health crisis, a family member, your own situation, financial crisis. I want to spend some time addressing that. And to do that, I'll start, I'll, I'll tell you a story from my own life. When I was in elementary school, I was not in the popular crowd. But I was out playing tag at recess with the boys. And as the bell rang to go in for recess, a boy tagged me. A typical elementary school argument ensued. Was it before the bell, during the bell, or after the bell that I was tagged? I said it was after the bell. It was clearly it was after the bell. He said it was before the bell. So we couldn't settle that. And in we went. He was upset. Uh, I was not the loser of the game. It just so happened this was the most popular kid in the school. And so he got the other boys to dislike me. And I remember a few, some weeks after that, to my surprise, all the kids were lined up and they yelled, we hate you. So there I am really feeling this, what, tremendous shame, tremendous, like, what did I do to deserve this? Kind of smiled, laughed, shrugged it off, went inside. And I remember coming home that day and being, you know, not knowing what to do with this, with these emotions. I came to my mother and she could tell something was wrong. I probably didn't tell her the whole story, but the, the kids were mean or something like that. And she did what good mothers do. She said, it's going to be okay. You can make new friends. Um, basically something, it's how we're taught to deal with a crisis. We need to make the person feel better. And many times when we deal with a crisis, we're actually trying to make ourselves feel better because we don't know how to handle shame. It's never really been something we've dealt with well. We don't know how to deal with it. And so basically, if I haven't dealt with my own Shame, I can't help you with yours. I remember that her words being profoundly ineffective. So much so that I, I remember going outside and saying things like, nobody loves me, everyone hates me. You know, why do we say things like that? Why, what is it that somehow that felt better? It feels like it's kind of a comforting thing to you to, to say these words. What we know about depression, it is a, a depressed person has all or none thinking, very black and white. Nobody loves me, everybody hates me. 
And from that point on, I remember I became a fairly angry young man. I was more aggressive. I was just more angry. And I wonder what could have been done if there is something that my mother could have done that might have reoriented me at that moment. And I want to use this story. It's a simple childhood story, but we all have crises, and we all try to make people feel better. And I want to ask the question now, what is the best thing we can do for someone in a crisis? As a physician, I certainly have faced a lot of people in crisis. And you do want to take care of the immediate needs. I want to read um, a verse from Matthew 22, 37 to 40. They're asking which commandments are the most important, and this is what Jesus says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus summarizes all the scriptures, two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. One of the problems that I think that we get into is that when we're dealing in a crisis, we often make the second commandment more important than the first. We try to love our neighbor, we try to make people feel better, but we're not actually pointing them toward God. We're not orienting them to the only person who can actually help them in their situation. My mother was unable to help me, although she wanted to. She had the best of intentions. She was unable to help me in that situation. It might have been more helpful to say, I wonder what God has to say about your loss. I wonder what God has to say about your loss. I wonder if Jesus has ever gone through anything like you're going through. Can you think of a time? Think of what we do now. When you're in the middle of a loss, physical, financial, emotional, relational, the problem with all this is we're so focused on ourselves that we are the center of the universe and getting rid of our pain is number one. That's all we think about. In fact, it's what we ruminate on. It's often why we can't sleep. It, it totally obsesses us. It basically hijacks us. A wise person or a true friend is able to listen, is able to empathize, but instead of pouring out this advice that we love to give people, Oh, I'll, I'll take care of that. Here's, here, let me give you the number to my lawyer. Uh, let me give you the number to my doctor. Let me give you the, the number to my counselor. In other words, I can't handle your discomfort. I can't handle your pain. I, I just need to give you something to make me feel better. 
to be able to listen, even if we have to listen in silence. It's difficult to listen to someone in despair, someone who's hopeless or helpless. And when people come to us hopeless or helpless, it often makes us very uncomfortable. And we, most of us don't even want to admit it. It's just uncomfortable when you can't fix it. To be able to say to someone, it sounds like you don't have the resources for this problem. I know somebody who does. Suddenly you're taking the person, and most of us assume that in the midst of a crisis, nobody wants to hear about God. That's not true. That's the only person that can help. That's the only resource you have. What people don't need is cliches. Well, all things work together for good. You know that. That's not helpful. That, that's, that basically says, you should feel like I feel right now. Well, that's, that's not empathy. To be able to empathize, to be able to listen, to be able to actually understand what someone is going through, and to then say, you may even need to ask permission. Would you like to hear what I do when I'm in situations like that? They may not. It may not be time. That may be the next conversation. But when someone's in a crisis and we all face them, whether it's children, whether it's even our parents, our spouses, our uh, loved ones, how we handle that, we have an opportunity to really point them toward God. The first commandment is always the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And most of us are so worried about fixing things we just go to the second commandment to try to love our neighbor with our human logic and wisdom. And it's often very ineffective. We're seed planters. We're seed planters. We, we want to be able to use the word of God and to plant the seed. I wonder if Jesus has faced anything like you're facing. Well, Jesus was rejected. How did Jesus handle his rejection? How did he handle people treating him really poorly? Where were his eyes focused? Now, for a little boy, that's a lot of spiritual growth, and I, I have no idea how I would have responded to something like that, but it would have made me shift my focus away from me and my pain, which, as we know, just starts a downward spiral. You start to think about this. I'll never have friends again. No one will ever love me. I'll be a failure, whatever, you know, on and on and on. We, we continue this negativity. And what we really need is someone to help us reframe, to reframe the circumstances or situation in our lives in a way that gives redemption a possibility. And if you just jump in there to try to fix everything, and just give people cards to, to call your lawyer to solve this problem, they may not get to experience who God is trying to be for them at this moment. 
And that's what we miss in our crises. We just want them over. We just want the problem gone so we can have our life back. Our life that's full of anxiety and worry and, and doesn't take problems very well. What if we grew? And what if we helped each other grow? Some questions to ask. Who is God for you right now? How do you see God right now? If you can get the person to say, he is my savior, he's my redeemer, he's my Lord, he's my ever-present help in trouble, he's my rock, he's my refuge. Speaking the word actually does something to our minds and our hearts. Especially if these are words that you want to believe. And when our friend, or even when we are in a crisis, sometimes it's hard to believe that God loves us. We're, it just doesn't feel right. And we are so feeling-oriented that we believe that the feeling is the truth. And I have never experienced my feelings changing as fast as I have experienced them when I start quoting the words of God. There'll be a morning where I'll come out and I'll be working on something and I'm, I'm frustrated and I'm a little bit moody or irritated. And my wife will say, who is God for you right now? Ooh, I, I you see what happens? There's a, an immediate tension there. Am I going to continue my pity party? Am I going to continue my irritation? Because recognizing God requires humility. I immediately have to say, I'm frustrated with this situation, but I'm not God. I have a God. It's not me. And it refocuses me. And as I start to say, he's my savior. He's my redeemer. Uh, he's my rock, refuge, fortress. All these, all these terms that we, we know, but we rarely say them. If we can say them, and it takes a little practice, Sometimes the first time out, it doesn't just, it's not a magic formula I'm giving you. I'm giving you, actually, cues for the relationship. If you're having trouble in a relationship, gratitude, thanksgiving, these things help sort of fuel the fire. It helps the relationship. Basically, you remember what the relationship is, the level you're at. And so when my wife is not in a good mood, you know, I'll say, Naomi, who are you? Who are you? Who is God for you? Who are you? In other words, tell me your identity right now. Are you defining yourself on the basis of this problem? Or are you saying, I'm the beloved of God. I'm his princess. I'm royalty. He loves me. It's interesting that when I, I, I gave this example to a men's group I spoke at recently, and I said, my wife w was not in a good mood. I said, who is God for you? He said, oh, my wife would slap me if I said that. Not everyone wants to hear this. Not everyone wants to hear, not everyone wants to be reoriented. You have to start on the same page. You have to, you have to agree this is a good thing. 
And at that moment, I can tell sometimes it's difficult for her because she recognizes, you recognize you're going into a spiritual battle to give someone a word that they don't really want. They want to hear it, but they don't. There's going to be a moment they're going to have to decide, am I going to humble myself and praise God right now, or I'm going to keep this selfish pity party going, The basically believing that there's no hope here, that God has left me, that this whatever I'm doing is never going to work out. We, we get into that. And I recognize not every relationship is ready for that, but there are a, a couple of questions we can ask people. Who is God for you? What is your identity now? Who are you right now? And we need to be ready to answer that on the basis of God's word, on the basis of scripture. I have a very, very high regard for scripture. 